People sometimes don't do so well in the task of living. We all don't always do life well. Evidence of this is that we commit wrong, and then we go on to suffer the consequences of sin, we live in the confusion that comes with it, and we struggle to make sense of the chaos that's going on in our own souls and then the lives of people all around us. And when we are honest with ourselves, we recognize that we are people who are in need of counsel. The world understands this. You can go to the mall, you can turn on the TV, surf the internet. There are lots of people and companies offering us solutions to life's problems. And in so doing, they offer counsel. J.C. Penney, for example, in the last couple of years put out a TV commercial ad in effort to help high schoolers wrestling with their fear of man, craving acceptance, which is evidenced by them wanting to fit in on the first day of school after summer break. And as the commercial opens, we see students filling into the school building. And as they do, the narrator, a high school girl, speaks. And we have to remember here Jesus' words that uh, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So here is this young high school girl, and all these people are filling into the school. This is what she says. High school girl says this. By the way, this is not what school looks like. Implication is getting into class, being on time, learning, studying, etc. She goes on. The only thing anyone cares about is that first day. Everyone will be styling their faves. Love that, she says. So you can just imagine right there, you're watching this, uh, you know, all the high schoolers who are watching this commercial, all the high schoolers who fear men and want people's praise, they want people to think that they too need, uh, that they too are fitting in, and, and so the high schoolers watching the TV commercial, they say, yeah, you know what, she's right. I shouldn't care about my education. I shouldn't think about learning so that I could be of benefit to society. Everyone's going to be styling their faves. I need to style my faves too. I need to make a good first impression. I need to fit in. But then the high school girl continues and she says, but I'll be bringing it every day because I went to JCPenney. They have so much great stuff. Sweet, she says. Anyway, what's your strategy? She's asking us. It's really an ingenious commercial. The problem is, right, we all want to fit in. I want acceptance, and then they offer a solution. J.C., not Jesus Christ. It is J.C. Penny. They have such great stuff. Right, so, and then there are the parents. I just think about what it does to the parents. Parents are watching this commercial, right? What child doesn't want their child to fit in? What child doesn't want their kid to do well in terms of having friends? And through this commercial, the teen, the narrator, is teaching the parents what they ought to think, too. You know? Mom and dad, all anyone cares about is making a good first impression on the first day. And so at the conclusion of the commercial, off go the viewers and their parents, off to solve their fear of man problem with some man-made solutions. You know, if we are aware, we realize that it isn't just children who are being counseled by the world. Adults are too, and it isn't just about material gain in clothing <clears throat> or fitting in it, fitting in. It's also the security that comes with new bank accounts, higher interest rates, a sense of cool that comes from a Cadillac, or excitement that might come with a pill. And these things, to some degree, 
work to give solutions to how to fulfill our own sinful desires. You know, amidst all the chatter in the world, it is critical for Christians to discern God's wisdom and counsel through His Word. What is it that God is saying to us today amidst all the chatter in the world regarding our greatest problem and God's solution? Our our series that we begin today entitled Counseling the Word addresses God's solutions to some of our most fundamental problems. And it's my hope that over the next uh, handful of weeks that through this series we learn to hear and counsel the Word of God, not only to ourselves, but also to others as we live life underneath and in the counsel of the Word of God. As Psalm 119 verse 30 reads, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So to successfully navigate through the Christian life, every step then must be illumined and then rooted in the Word of God. And so to begin our series, we start by looking at what we are to counsel. What we are to counsel, that is the Word of God. So there's little incentive for us to use the Word of God in counseling or even to turn to it in the midst of life's problems or acknowledge it to be even wisdom at all if we don't understand what the Word does where it comes from, and what its uses are. Basically, the sufficiency of Scripture. And I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. And if you're sitting next to someone who might not know the, their way around the Bible, you can offer help to get them to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. <clears throat> Paul the Apostle, who is the author of the letter, and then Timothy, who is the recipient of the letter, they were certainly experiencing some problems in living and challenges in living. Paul's circumstances while writing would weaken some of the strongest knees. You see, at the time of writing, when Paul is you know, penning this letter, he's an old man awaiting his own execution. You look there at chapter 4, verse 6. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's reflecting on his whole entire life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord. The righteous judge will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So he's not... Even though he's staring a death sentence in the face, he's not freaking out. Calling Timothy to hatch a plan to break him out of jail. No, he's actually going to encourage Timothy to continue in the very thing that Paul himself suffers for. This very much, 2 Timothy is very much like his last will and testament. And we see what's on Paul's mind and we also see what Paul wants to be on Timothy's mind. But imagine being Timothy, right? So there's not only problems, challenges in living with Paul, there's also challenges in Timothy's life. At this time, he's relatively a young man. You know, he's probably in his mid-30s. And he, giving his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ's church, he's walking in the same footsteps as Paul. One of suffering. This is the path that Jesus walked, a path that Paul walks. And Timothy, if he's aware, he also knows that this is a path, too, that he will walk. Imagine if you're struggling to believe in the truths of Jesus Christ. Imagine the fear and trepidation that comes with continuing 
which is what Paul wants him to do. Or imagine if he's firm in the faith, he's going to have great security, great confidence, and great hope in walking in the same footsteps of his mentor and ultimately the Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I find this letter really encouraging, not only because I'm a young pastor, but because I'm just a Christian. As Paul anchors young Timothy by his very own example, and then more importantly, in the truths of Jesus Christ, so he anchors me, and so he anchors you, no matter what's going on, in the same, his example, and then in the truths of Jesus Christ. We focus on verses 14 to 17, but I'm going to go ahead and read verses 10 to 17. And he had just talked about here, the context is he just talked about false teachers, <clears throat> those who reject Jesus Christ. Then he turns towards Timothy. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch at Iconium and at Lystra, with persecutions I endured. Yet, for them, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know where the driving exhortation is there in those verses? It's in, it's in verse 13. Continue. I find this really assuring uh, and uplifting that the fact that Paul has to clarify to Timothy what the objective is here. As Christians, we acknowledge that we all deal with a lot of stuff in this fallen and sinful world, the effects of sin, and sometimes we just want to give up. We want to throw in the towel, fold the cars, and just turn over. We have our sinful desires from within that we experience. We have the trials and whatnot from without and sometimes the Christian life is just frankly discouraging. But Paul exhorts young Timothy, continue. God calls us all to also continue. It's the call of the Christian life. Perseverance. So Philippians 2.12, there Paul is encouraging the Philippian church to work out your salvation. 2 Peter 1.10 says, make your calling and election sure through endurance. And in many ways, our series is all about how exactly we are to continue rooted in the truths about God and who he has made us to be as Christians. The fact that we still struggle. How do we understand the Christian life uh, given that he saves us into a church? How, what does it look like to live the Christian life with one another? So what does it look like to continue in the church? So our series is really about how to continue believing the truths of Jesus and continue in the faith. But it is what we are to continue that has our attention today. What we are to continue in that has our attention today. He says there, continue in the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So you see right there what it is that Paul wants us to continue in. So if you want to finish the race of faith, if you want to complete 
the journey of the Christian life. If you want to grow up into salvation through faith in Jesus, you must continue in the Word of God. This says a lot about the Word of God, doesn't it? It speaks of the sufficiency of the Word to save, secure, and to sanctify, and to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. So what is it that we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture? What is it that we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture? Go ahead and write this down. The sufficiency of Scripture is a sufficiency of divine words that God gives to help us understand the entire world around us. That's what we mean when we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture is a sufficiency of divine words that God gives to us to help us understand our entire world around us. And this morning we ask and answer the question, why is the word of God sufficient for the Christian life? Why is the word of God sufficient for the Christian life? Answer number one, because of what the word does. Because of what the word does. It says there in verse 15, the word is able to make us wise unto salvation. So in general, the scripture, he also calls it the sacred writings. God tells readers how to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus here, the reason why God needed to step in and give us words to give us a plan of salvation is because we had sinned against him and, and wandered away from the path of salvation. God had made man, he created everybody to be in a relationship with him underneath his good and loving lordship. But then sinners rebelled against him. They chose to say, forget God's powerful word. I'm going to live according to my own will, my own word, and be my own Lord. And the Bible calls that sin. And it is, so, it is through God's word then that God draws near to sinners once again. Imagine the king writing to rebels this grand invitation that you are invited, even though you're a rebel, you are invited nevertheless to the table, to the banquet table in my house, where I give you everything you've ever needed. In my house, I give you the law and show you how it is that you are to live to the praise of my glory, but also your good. In a way in which you fulfill your responsibilities of displaying my good character in loving and leading and caring for those around you, even the very world that we live in, so that God would be glorified. <clears throat> so God then draws near to sinners in his very word. And the Old Testament foretold, so if we're thinking about the Word of God, the Old Testament points us to God's salvation plan in Jesus Christ, God's saving purposes in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The New Testament goes on and explains the person and work of Jesus Christ as he lived the perfect life that we could not and dies the death we should have. So the punishment that we earned, Jesus Christ takes upon his very own self. And so this grand king calls all to repent of your sins and believe. That's sort of like the grand story of the Bible. Christ steps in as our substitute. He bears the wrath that we deserve so that rebels would be free, forgiven, adopted, loved again by the Father. <clears throat> the scripture that Paul refers to there in verse 15 is indeed the Old Testament. It reminds us of Jesus' words, let's say in Luke 24, it says, Everything written about me in the Old Testament needs to be fulfilled. That Christ was to live, die, and then be raised again. It was these scriptures that Timothy was acquainted with through his mother and his grandfather, uh, grandmother. It was these scriptures that he had learned and then he went on to believe. 
And it is these scriptures that God used to make him wise for living for the glory of God and trusting in Christ as Savior. Now, you might be wondering, what about the New Testament scriptures? That's an entirely appropriate question. And it is certain that Paul had received authoritative teaching from others. So we know that he traveled around with Luke and uh, went on various missionary journeys. We can read about that in the book of Acts. But not only that, though, he received authoritative teaching from Jesus himself, which is why in 1 Corinthians he can say, what I received from the Lord, I now pass on to you. But Paul also understood his own writings to be authoritative. So we know that Paul himself seemed to be aware that what he wrote was binding on churches. And then not only that, though, but other apostles acknowledged his writings to be authoritative. So turn over to 2 Peter 3.16. 2 Peter 3.16. Just turn to the right handful of books and you get a 2 Peter 3.16. Now here, Paul, uh, I mean, sorry, um, Peter is addressing issues about false teachers who twist divine revelation. But what I want to point out is what, or sorry, is how Paul, sorry, how Peter describes Paul's writings. How Peter describes Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3.16. He says there about Paul, Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Now get this, here's my point. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what Peter's talking about here is the Old Testament. This word that when he talks about the scriptures there, it's actually a formal word referred to the collection of scriptures that God had given them in the Old Testament. So what Peter himself is, how Peter is viewing Paul's own writings is he's elevating it to the same position as the Old Testament scriptures. So even here in Peter's mind, there is an acknowledgement that Paul's writings are on par with the Old Testament. So for us today, 21st century, we who have this entire Bible, the Old and New Testaments, are able to make us wise unto salvation. The word of God is sufficient for the Christian life as it is a comprehensive sufficiency that helps us understand the entire world around us question though you might have as this is a series on counseling you may ask well i can see how the bible tells of a story of salvation and then describes how we can get it but how exactly does it help me in my problems with living doesn't salvation just mean how we can be forgiven of our sin and get into eternal life with jesus christ get salvation This question is actually a pretty common question. The thought is, you know, if we are going to be looking at Scripture as we would an encyclopedia, then the natural conclusion is that Scripture is not sufficient but deficient for all of life. Because Scripture doesn't speak about a whole lot of things, right? I mean, it doesn't speak about the specifics on a number of addictions. So, drug addiction doesn't speak about heroin. Is it applicable to heroin addiction? Is it applicable to those who are compulsive eaters? Is it applicable to those who are addicted to social media? Some of you guys right now are looking at your phones. Maybe you intended to look at Facebook as we speak. It doesn't speak specifically to self-harm. General anxiety, anxiety disorders. It doesn't speak to anorexia, other eating disorders. We could go on and on and on about all the things it doesn't speak to. And the thought is, if the Bible does not speak to these things, then... We need to go outside of Scripture to find meaningful solutions. And here is where the secular disciplines seem 
so attractive, right? I mean, many of the secular disciplines seek to diagnose, catalog, and treat people's problems. So the conclusion that others have is scripture is not sufficient, it is deficient. For spiritual problems, I go to the church. For my secular life problems, I go to secular sources. But friends, to think of God's word like that is to misunderstand the sufficiency of Scripture. To think of God's word like that, like I just described, is to misunderstand the sufficiency of Scripture. Again, the sufficiency of Scripture is a sufficiency of divine words that helps us understand the whole entire world around us. So God does not mean, in his word, God did not mean to give us an exhaustive, encyclopedic knowledge that brings, finally discovery and application of knowledge to an end once and for all. That's not God's intention. No, through the Bible, God has given us divine words that function as like heavenly reality goggles that helps us see things as God himself sees sees things. See things from a divine perspective. So understood correctly then, the word of God is absolutely sufficient. Compare that to a diagnosis and treatment that comes from the secular fields. In secular counseling, that is, to be clear, counseling that is specifically non-religious, they offer counsel, diagnosis, treatment, demands problems from a position that, number one, God does not exist. Number two, we are not God's creation. Number three, we do not live for God's glory. And number four, we are not created to live in relationship with God. That's secular counseling, right? They decidedly, purposefully are removing God, religious things from their advice. And you know, many supposed Christian counselors have actually taken their cues from secular counseling. So a whole movement sprung up in the middle of the 20th century uh, in in, uh, the liberal mainline denominations that rejected the truths of the Bible, that did not believe the Bible was true, but still called themselves Christians. They looked to the secular practices and they said, we're going to use those practices as our practices, but just kind of try and fit it in a general understanding of what we see in the Bible, how people as Christians create this idea of religion in order to find uh, security or something like that. But it's no surprise how we see the practices being very similar, no matter if one calls themselves Christian. They're not, they're rejecting the Bible's truths. And the secular, they're excising the Bible's truths from their counseling. The worldviews are actually very, very similar that the Bible is not true. And you want to know one way you can identify whether counseling has co-opted the views of the secular. It is to see whether or not the counsel given addresses man in and of himself as opposed to man with respect to God, as one author put it. That's how you can tell if counsel is secular or not. Whether or not the counsel given addresses man in and of himself as ultimate, or whether or not uh, the counsel given addresses man with respect to God, his creator. So in the secular world, again, there is no talk about man with respect to God. Man is autonomous. There is no connection, no dependence, no awareness of God. And the fact that he is your creator, that he has designed us to live a certain way, to display his very goodness of his character. So if secular counseling seeks to be non-religious, how will their diagnosis and treatments ever be sufficient? 
if the Bible's truths are really true? How will the sufficient di- how will the sufficient diagnosis be determined, or how will a sufficient diagnosis be determined if what is excluded are the very truths that undergird the universe? I mean, just think about going to seek counseling from a counselor that comes from that background. When you enter into the office, you're entering into a different reality. God does not exist. So let me give you counsel in recognition or with the understanding that there is no God. That the relationship between you and God really does not matter and there is nothing actually that exists there. But for the Christian who lives under God and in the reality of his truths, we see that God always addresses people in his word. He addresses man in relation to himself. And our fundamental, fundamental and foundational problem is a worship problem, isn't it? We have abandoned our worship of God, and instead we've turned to worship other things, false gods in our very own selves. We have sinned against God and abandoned him, and instead, just as Romans 1 says, is we fashion idols and even make ourselves to be idols. But as the Christian who is rooted in God's word and who's going to be counseling God's word, the aim is first and foremost to address that relationship between God and man, man with respect to God. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, I do not mean to attack the secular when I say that secular counseling will never offer a diagnosis and treatment that is finally sufficient. That's not my intention at all. I mean, just think about it this way. If you had pertinent in effort to help you understand the Christian worldview, if you had pertinent, life-changing, life-altering facts, but refused to acknowledge them and take them into consideration as you treated a patient, the charge of malpractice could be leveled against you. See, from the Bible's point of view, diagnosing and treating rightly, sufficiently, starts with understanding man in relationship to God. For the Christian to purposefully disregard God would be something like our malpractice. To address the ultimate problem of sin, we need to give the ultimate solution of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who saves and sanctifies by the power of his spirit according to his word. But do not get me wrong, once again, do not get me wrong, the Christian can still appreciate, I still appreciate uh, diagnoses, catalogs, and treatments that go on in the secular field. So I have a good friend whose son was diagnosed with all sorts of uh, physiological, psychological disorders. And he legitimately had them. And so he would, he would spiral into these, um, these episodes where he frankly just wanted to kill himself and other people. He genuinely wanted to do that. And so eventually he had to go to a, a mental hospital for... I think it was about a month, right? I appreciate the doctors who in the secular field are able to, by science, by God's common grace, he gives people the ability to discover knowledge and help people understand how they are behaving to diagnose true physiological disorders and then prescribe certain treatments. I appreciate that. Some of you here today are like myself who have relatives who have really been diagnosed with genuine physiological disorders of the mind and the body. So I have a relative who is bipolar. There are genuine uh, chemical imbalances of his bo- in his body. I appreciate their diagnosis. I appreciate the medical team's treatment. I appreciate the fact that he can 
the fact that he can listen to their diagnosis, the treatment, and then follow it. But given the sufficiency of Scripture, we need to understand that any diagnosis and treatment in light of the Word of God, or sorry, we need to understand that any diagnosis and any treatment needs to be understood underneath the big understanding of man in relationship to God. Underneath and within the Word of God that helps us understand all these things. So it's okay to go to extra-biblical knowledge to inform how we as Christians live out our Christian life. Now that might make some of you guys comfortable, but that is okay. So in other words, are we allowed, let's say you guys, a couple here gets in an argument. As me, a pastor, or as you as a Christian who's seeking to counsel them, you are allowed to ask for extra-biblical advice, like, what happened? What exactly was the disagreement about? And then therefore, let the context, the information extra-biblical information inform the way in which you actually give the advice. It's okay to use extra-biblical advice, but where we run into trouble is when we understand that extra-biblical advice or information to be ultimate. But according to the Bible, any diagnosis and treatment that does not address God or man in relation to God is not finally sufficient. So, for example, a sinner showing the symptoms of manic depression or not showing them is still a sinner needing to be reconciled and forgiven by God. This is still a person who needs to learn to live underneath the lordship of God and the people that he's created to be in relationship with them. And it's only when we live in those relationships, when we understand our relationship to God and relationship to one another, as people who are created by God, then we have an ultimate solution. The word of God addresses the heart of the matter. Also, if you're a Christian working in fields that seek to diagnose, catalog, and treat, this can be a very good thing too. I'm not saying that you need to change jobs immediately. Offering solutions that address behavior modification is a necessary thing by God's common grace. And I can be thankful for these things. According to God's common grace, he has given Christians and non-Christians the knowledge and ability to treat genuine physiological issues. That is good, but again, the Bible says that this is not ultimate because behavior modification does not get to the heart of the matter. God, through his word, gets to the heart of the matter. And his word gives us lenses to see things from a divine perspective, man with a relationship to, the, to God, as all life is lived before the face of God. This truth is implied, as Paul makes clear, where the word comes from. Which brings us to point number two. Where the word of God comes from. Why is it sufficient? It's because it comes from God. You see there in verse 15, all scripture is breathed out by God. This phrase, breathed out by God, speaks of source or origination. And we understand the world through the word when we understand the word's source, right? Where it originates from. And when I say source, I don't simply mean that God passes things along. That's not what it means by breathed out by God. Breathed out by God reflects the fact that God's word originates from God. Just as his word created the universe with authoritative power, so God's word creates the scriptures with authoritative power, and they possess authoritative power. And just as we ought to recognize God's authority in creation, so we ought to recognize God's authority in the word of God, his breathed out word. 
And so his word then is to be lived in, lived under, and obeyed. In relation to scripture making us wise for salvation, there's nothing like God, who's overall the sovereign creator, entering into our situation, interrupting our course of life, course of life to speak authoritatively about how we are to live in his universe, in relationship to him, and one another underneath his good law. In God's word, he draws near to man. And I think when we back up a little bit um, and see what God does as he reveals himself through his word, we see more clearly scripture's sufficiency to help us understand all of life. So here we're going to understand scripture's sufficiency by seeing what God does as he reveals himself through his word. So what does he do as he reveals himself through his word? Number one, God reveals his lordship as the God of the covenant. God reveals his lordship. The word that ordered the universe that dwells in the heavens, God brings to come, or uh, God comes to rule over the lives of his people. So the same word that exists in the heavens, you know, it says that there, God's word exists in the heavens, it resides in the heavens. As God brings his word to earth then, he makes his will known and experienced here on earth. It's kind of like a practical uh, working out of the Lord's Prayer. Your will, God, in heaven, that's already up there, be done on earth. And God does that in his word. Which is why, you know, let's say in the beginning of the Ten Commandments, right, when God brings his word to his people, in the Ten Commandments, definitely important, the Lord starts off announcing this declaration, I am the Lord. He reveals his lordship through his word. That's number one. Second thing he does, through his word, God establishes a covenant with his people. Through his word, God establishes a covenant with his people. So, you know, when, when if you guys are wanting to get married one day, uh, man and woman, you're going to be giving your vows to enter into covenant. Well, God does the same thing, too, when he brings his word to his people. He enters, he establishes his covenant with his people, with covenant words. Think of God drawing near to Abraham. I draw you out. I give you a promise with the word. And, he, and then he sends on the promise with, verbally. To Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Israel, Christians. Scholars go on to even point out that parts of the law are in the form of a Near Eastern king-vassal treaty. Where the sovereign king is establishing a covenant with his subjects. I mean, that's the very structure of the law. Third thing, with this word, God places claims on his people. So he reveals his lordship. He enters into covenant with people, and then he places claims on his people. And he does this through calls and commands, whether they be commands to Israel, and then in the New Testament you've got commands to the church. These are our covenant obligations to this Lord. And they ought always be understood in connection to the Lord, <clears throat> as he is the God of the covenant. See, you, you see the implications of these three things here? Uh, it helps us understand the world around us as the Lord's will is being made known here on earth. And then he establishes his lordship. Well, that's going to help me understand how to live my life, right? It means I'm not autonomous, but all of a sudden God is the one that I should live to and live under. It helps us focus on our relationship with him, not just on what I want to do and the relationships that I create or end or I abuse. No, this actually has to do with the relationships that God has instituted 
for his glory. And then lastly, as he gives us commands, he shows us how to live in his world to the praise of his glory and man's good. So it helps us understand we are reoriented to the God who created us. As the word of the Lord draws near, you see this connection here as God reveals, as he establishes, as he claims us. You see this connection between kingdom and covenant. With God's covenant, one has said he establishes his rule over his people through his word. This is why his word achieves his will. It is effective, it is powerful, which is the theme of the service, if you haven't noticed by now. So in Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 11, go ahead and turn there. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 to 11. We see a useful comparison of God's life-giving word to life-giving rain. So here we're thinking about how God's word draws near and it does something. It achieves as God reveals, as he enters into covenant, and then also as he claims by commands. We see how effective it is. It says, therefore, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, so you get the mental picture, we got El Nino coming down. Just as it comes down from heaven, it does not return there, but it waters the earth and makes it bring forth and sprout. So it produces, it's productive, it is efficient. It gives giving seed to the flower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So there you go. You got the word of God from the sovereign God himself. It goes out into his plane, into the area that he wants it to, and then it germinates. It gives life and produces something. It accomplishes something. It is sufficient for accomplishing God's will. So it's powerful. And it does it, God's word accomplishes with the full authority of the king. And so when we are saved, Christian, when you are saved, you are saved by the word of God. James 1.18 reads this, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. And not only are we saved by the word of God, we are sanctified by the word of God. As Jesus prayed to God in John 17.17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. And as 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, that we are to grow up into salvation by the word of God. That's where the word of God comes from. It is of God. It is breathed out by God. And as it helps us reorient our whole entire lives to the king and creator of the universe, this brings us to point number three. We see that it is useful for everything. It is therefore useful for everything. 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He says it's useful for all of life because it helps us reorient ourselves and helps us understand what life looks like underneath our loving Lord. We see that it's profitable for doctrine. So you look there at the first pair. You have teaching and reproof. <clears throat> so here it helps us believe everything we need to believe about the, who this king is. Positively, scripture teaches us what we are to believe and conclude about the world around us and then put negatively, scripture puts us straight when we go off track. It is useful for reproof. And then you see there the second pair there. It addresses conduct, how we are to live in his kingdom. Correction, and there the word correction has to do with living the Christian life. And then you've got training. 
but training in righteousness, in righteous living, and what it looks like to be righteous and holy as God is holy. And there you see the final purpose there. The purpose, why it does these things, it's comprehensive, that the man of God may be complete or capable or proficient, equipped for every good work. You see how practical God's word is? It's not just about how you get into salvation and forgiven of your sins. It's what you are to believe and then how to be proficient and complete, ready for every good work, every good thing, every good deed in his kingdom. And so it makes us wise unto salvation. It's like a big bucket term that encompasses the whole entire Christian life live underneath the lordship of God. It's not a narrow term, this wise unto salvation. It's a big, broad bucket term. As the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, those are comprehensive terms, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And He does that through His Word. You know, for Paul, God's timeless truths though they were not intended to speak exhaustively on everything, God's timeless truths, though they are not intended to speak exhaustively on everything, are nevertheless comprehensively sufficient to address the whole entire, every life situation, all of the changing situations, whether it be in the first century or the 21st century. So it gives us the grids by which we come to understand every, every single experience, fact, trouble, trial, sin, situation that there could ever be underneath the sun. As Romans 14.5 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The Old Testament is not only good for the New Testament, the whole Bible is, is good for us even today. Same goes for us in the 21st century just as it was for the first. And thank God, the word of the Lord, the word of God, we have the Lord's rule to us about how we are to live under his good and loving lordship. So even though God has not spoken encyclopedically in his word, addressing every single fact and circumstance to infinity and beyond, we can indeed have confidence that his word in his word, he has revealed crucial facts and given us rich illustrations of those facts. And when taking them together, meditating on them carefully, prayerfully, in the power of the Spirit, we are able to interpret whatever other fact or situation or struggle we encounter, says David Powelson. But for the church established with the word, armed with the word of God, our task, your task, if you're here today and are a Christian, your task here today is to think hard, as Paulson says, and demonstrate how the common themes of biblical truth underlie the idiosyncrasies and complexities of our own sin and the misery, chaos, and confusion we see all around. So Christian, the question then is, if God's word is sufficient for all of life, divine words that help us understand the whole entire world around us, the question is, you know, do, are we continuing to live in it and believe in it and cling to it? And then not only that, though, as we seek to help everyone, everyone here in the pews in front of us or across from us, as we seek to help all those people, are we actually, according to what... 
Dave Powelson encourages us to do, to take the truths and the rich illustrations and the facts and then interpret everyone's life accordingly. Because we're always, we are always uh, tempted to interpret things in our own way, autonomous from God. So if somebody wrongs us, right, we're so tempted to feel the offense against us, and then that's it. But according to the Bible, that's not just it. First and foremost, the offense is committed not primarily against us, but primarily against God. So when we as Christian brothers and sisters pull up next to other Christian brothers and sisters, we say, yes, I recognize that you sinned against me, but brother, sister, you've sinned against God. The good news, though, is the Lord wants you in relationship with him, and he restores this relationship through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sins. And he also reestablishes our relationship. And so I forgive you through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's much different than saying something like, oh, I can't believe this person sinned against me. The problem is is done. The story is over. We cut off that relationship. No, actually, we're trying to usher that person back into this understanding that the Lord is the Lord of the universe. And we ought to give counsel with to man in respect to the Lord at all times. Helping one another understand all of our own idiosyncrasies, right? There's 50 people here struggling in our own unique ways in all these different times, with all these different sins and background that we come to, and so we're creating new situations. But the praise God that he gives us his sufficient word, that even though we're creating new situations, and even sinning in maybe new ways, if that were even possible, we bring the sufficient word to help us understand our own world around us. So that's where we see the sufficiency of scripture to help us understand And how to redirect and reorient our lives under the Lord, in covenant with this Lord, and fulfilling his commands in a way that glorifies him and in a manner that is good for us as his people. Praise God for the sufficiency of his word to counsel. In the the future weeks, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to be looking at all sorts of things. Not necessarily how to counsel the word, but how do we believe the truths of God as we ourselves stumble as Christians. How do we believe, even though we commit various sins, how do we believe that we are genuinely new creations in Jesus Christ? That we are loved by God? What does that look like when we ourselves are so tempted to struggle with guilt and shame and all this other stuff? What does it look like for me as a Christian to walk with you guys, needing counsel from you to help give me the right interpretation of my life when I am reinterpreting it for myself? When I'm tempted to believe certain things, what does it look like for us as a church to come alongside one another and to speak these words of truth uh, walking together in the Christian life? So we're going to take various passages and truths of Scripture, who we are in Christ Jesus, what we have in Christ Jesus, and try and apply that to our very own selves. And then also, hopefully as a byproduct, learn to apply these truths to one another. To conclude, the Word of God is a lamp unto... Our feet, isn't it? That lights up a whole entire path. This is Psalm 119 says. The word of God imparts wisdom to the simple. It is sufficient. The word of God makes us wise for salvation. It comes from God. It is useful for all of life as it helps us understand the entire world around us. So I pray that as we move into this series on counseling the word of God, that we come to navigate our own Christian life The journey that is this Christian life that is joyful, sometimes treacherous, sometimes dangerous. But I hope that doing this helps us to be confident 
that just as Christ saves us by his word, so he will carry us to the end by his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, indeed, we thank you for your word that is powerful, that saves, that renews, that gives new birth, that sanctifies. Father, we pray that we, indeed, by the power of your spirit, we would be helped to root every single step in the journey of the Christian life in your word. Lord, help us believe it. Help us know the truths in it. And Lord, we pray that we as a church, too, would be able to come alongside one another and help remind each other of the power of the gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you saved by your blood. And we know that you are the word that has drawn near. Through your words and through your acts, you announce your own lordship. Through your blood, you bring sinners into covenant with you, all by your grace, all by your love, according to your mercy. And we know that according to your commands, we are called to live to the praise of your glory. Father, we pray that you would help us do this, trusting in Jesus Christ and his word, which is sufficient to save and sanctify. In your name we pray. Amen.